Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Yes, I am your faithful podcasting friend, Diana, here to help you heal from all kinds of trauma. I tried to provide you as many resources as I can, personal stories, and tools in your healing journey. I introduce my next guest with the recent climate regarding police officers. I want to make it very clear to my listeners that I will not put up with any backlash or nasty comments about me or my guest appearing on the show. Now, he is sharing a very personal story of some mistakes that he has made, but he took ownership of it, and he's working his way back to earning the trust of the community that he serves. I have all kinds of guests on here, including people of color, and I have upcoming guests with different backgrounds and cultures. So if you don't want to listen to a former law enforcement officer's story, then you can go on to the next episode. That's okay. But I hope that you will stay and listen and be open-hearted. We all have made mistakes, but what matters is what you learn from it and what you do with it. So with that in mind, let me read some of his bio. He says, I was an agnostic police officer for over 25 years. I was exposed to many traumatic incidents. I was diagnosed with PTSD. Then I was diagnosed with an incurable debilitating neuromuscular disease. I had over 25 surgeries in 10 years. I was prescribed opioids for the pain and I soon began to abuse the opioids to relieve the negative emotions of PTSD. Then my daughter was diagnosed with liver tumors. This placed me in a downward spiral that led me to make some very poor decisions. It led me to a 14-year prison sentence. Through divine intervention, my daughter and I were healed. I spent over eight years in federal prison where I taught how God heals PTSD. In prison, I obtained a master's degree in theology and counseling, then a doctorate in Christian counseling. I went on to be a registered addiction counselor, and I'm in process of becoming a chaplain with the Assemblies of God Church. If you allow him to do so, God will change your mistakes and traumatic events into good. I'm a great example of God's love. So this is the conversation that I had with Norm Vilsch. So please welcome Norm Vilsch to the show today. I sure appreciate you coming on the show and reaching out to me. And uh, you're my PTSD expert today. <laughs> thank you. I, thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. I do my homework. I try. <laughs> So we're going to hear your fascinating story of, you know, how you lost your way and how you found the Lord and who's the great healer and redeemer. 
So wow. we want to talk about your your family history, but I wanted to to share with you a story about what happened on my first trip to Normandy. I'm a I'm a World War II history nut, and my my ex husband's uncle served in the army during D Day, uh, Normandy Beach, and uh, we hired a tour group to take us around because it was very spread out, and you will never guess what the very first stop was. It was the German cemetery. Oh, boy. And the guide explained to us that the reason that he takes his groups there is because we tend to think of the German soldiers as these evil people, the enemy. Um, Well, the Nazis were evil, yes. Hitler was evil, of course. But the soldiers, he pointed out, were just young boys, just like our American soldiers were boys. They were drafted by their leaders to fight in a war that they probably didn't want to fight in. And they were just doing what they were told. Then their mothers lost their sons. And he showed us the graves of these young German soldiers. And some of them were 16. You know, they probably had fake IDs, but it it is a really beautiful cemetery. And uh, yes, we went to all the other places like uh, Colville-sur-la-Mer, the American cemetery. But that's what I immediately thought of when I heard about your family's history and um, how your father fought during World War II on the German side. So just for openers, can you um, tell us a little bit about your your parents' story and your upbringing? Yeah, that story is my dad's. You know, his parents died at a very young age. He doesn't even know how they died, if it was cancer or what, you know medical science wasn't too great back then and he was orphaned basically at 15 so he had no place to go and he joined the army he lied about his age and joined the army and Mm. he he didn't talk too much about his time in in the army I believe now it was because of his PTSD he did just didn't want to talk about it but the things he did say was exactly the same thing he didn't want to but if you refuse to fight, they would just execute you, you know, oh. if you didn't want to fight. So, but he did his, his um, he helped the war effort for the Americans by kind of making sure that things didn't work well. He was on artillery and the, he always shipped the wrong artillery shells to the wrong guns and stuff because nobody wanted the war. Oh, nobody did. Wow. And um, then he got captured um, by the Americans he was, I think it was six months in a prisoner of war camp and the Americans treated him real well. So that wasn't an issue, but, and my mom, she was also in the military and she was um, in the Netherlands, but during the, the war, allied bombers basically killed my whole family. I, I have no one except my mom and dad. Well, my mom had a sister. I'm sorry. My mom had a sister. That was it. Mm-hmm. it was, they lost their parents. They lost all the sisters and brothers. And so, like you said, it's, they were evil, but war is evil. I mean, yes. my whole family died during the war. And I didn't know it at the time, but I, I think all this stress, this, this trauma affected the, the family that we can't even comprehend. Because when they came here, they immigrated here in the 50s, and they had me in the um, early 60s. And they, they, they worked hard, and they did but they never talked about, they never showed love. They never showed any kind of positive emotions, right? And I think that's part of the symptoms of PTSD. Mm. 
Wow, that, that's incredible story. We generally uh, associate PTSD with military service, you know, American sniper. Did your dad talk about PTSD in any way? No, he was the kind of guy who pull, pull yourself up with the bootstraps, you know, don't show emotion. You know, I mean, this is a, I'm only telling this to make an illustration, not, not to, to disrespect him. Mm-hmm. But he was the kind of guy, and when I was 16, one of my close friends died in a motorcycle accident. And um, I was crying, you know, because that was really my first experience with death. And he came into my room and just was yelling at me, shut up, stop it, stop crying. Men don't cry. Mm-hmm. And when I couldn't stop, he basically beat me, <laughs> you know, oh. men don't cry. And then I, I learned that at the police academy, it was the same kind of thing. So that was mm-hmm. a common thread amongst men of that generation and of, you know, the first responder culture. So it was, it was never shown emotion. Like I said, my mom and dad might've held hands, but I've never seen them kiss or show any kind of real emotion, even my mom. And I believe that's from the, the trauma of, of war, but the trauma from war is the same as we can experience here, say, being a victim of a crime, a violent crime, or just being threatened by somebody. I mean, these are the same things. When you see something that's life-threatening, it can really affect you the rest of your life. Yes, exactly. Now, we're going to talk about first responder PTSD today. Can you define what the difference between first responder PTSD is and how it is different from like a war combat zone PTSD? Well, I believe there is no difference Hmm. because you see the same things, right? When you're deployed um, in a combat zone, you see horrific things, you know, you see killings and shootings and and children that have been killed and you may even have to do some killing yourself so that's only in a short time distance, right? I mean, there's been guys that have been deployed you know, four or five times, but those deployments are generally six months. First responders, you know, police and fire, even um, ambulance drivers, and even trauma room doctors, they see this during a whole career, 25, 30 year career. So it's cumulative and they see the same things. You know, I, I've seen many, many children um, killed. I've, I've been involved in shootings. Thank God I've never had to shoot myself, but um, I've seen people die in, in shootings. I've seen people just shot in, in wounded, um, suicides that are just horrific scenes, uh, car mm. crashes that are horrific scenes, uh, trains versus pedestrians. I mean, the, these crime scenes or these um, death scenes stick with one forever. I mean, I still see every single one of them. When I close my eyes, I can picture every single one of them in vivid detail. Wow. And they keep you up at night, I'm sure. Yeah. So we're, we're going to talk about your, you have a, a genetic neurological disease and you've had it for 30 years. Wow. That's, that's a long time. Can you tell us about the trials and challenges that you've had with that disease? Yeah, about when I was 39 years old, I was diagnosed with peripheral neuropathy. What would happen? It, it, I don't. I'm not a diabetic, <clears throat> so it's a it's a rare. I shouldn't say rare, but it's uncommon for people to have neuropathy when you're not a diabetic. What was happening with me was I was developing these huge blisters or ulcers. They're actually ulcers. They're big 
quarter size holes in your feet and they weren't healing. And so when I went to the doctor, that's when I was diagnosed. And then they did some genetic testing and found that I had another disease, which is called Charcot-Marie tooth disease. So the, the peripheral neuropathy deadens the nerves in the extremities. The Charcot-Marie tooth disease deadens the muscles in the extremities. So um, like, for instance, I don't know if you can see my, my hands, uh -huh. I, they're all curled up yeah. and um, that's part of it. So I have no grip. So at 39, I started having some surgeries at about 42, 43, I lost the, the um, strength of my hands. So buttoning buttons was, is impossible. I can't button buttons. My wife had to sew Velcro into my shirts and into my uh, pants so that I could use the Velcro instead of the buttons. Smart lady. Yeah. And I think that triggered my PTSD because I had been an officer for about 12, 13 years at that point. And what I've learned is that it doesn't lay dormant, but it, it just, it's, it's, this was triggered by the, the trauma of all these surgeries. I had 30 surgeries in 10 years. So I found myself being real depressed. I would, I was depressed for years or two or three months at a time. I would just, you know, whine and, and lay on the couch and eat. It was crazy. And my wife saw that and she basically told me you need help. And of course, in the first responder culture, we don't want to seek help because it's a sign of weakness. And that's in the military also in, in, in the doctors, all first responders are the same. It's a warrior type culture where you got to be strong. You know, you've got to go out there and face whatever your job is and, and do it. You can't sit there and cry. I remember this one time when I had to give a death notice to this lady it was about three o'clock in the morning and her son had been killed in an accident somewhere else. And, you know, I was with another officer and we gave her the, the notification. I started to cry with her, you know, and we sat down and we hugged and, you know, I got her all the help. Mm -hmm. But when I left, the other officer was laughing at me, you know, so what do you, do? What do, you do? I said, well, this, this hit me hard, you know? So we can't seek help that, I mean, that was one of the things when I got arrested, my judge said, well, you just go seek some help. It's not that easy because once another first responder sees that you're weak, or I shouldn't say sees, perceives that you're weak, then they won't work with you anymore. First of all, they don't trust you. And then they think that you can't handle your job and they don't want to be around you. So it's a very difficult situation for first responders. That's why there's such a high um, uh, suicide rate. And then in re retired officers, police officers, there's a huge suicide rate. It goes, you know, just jumps up exponentially. So the culture needs to be changed. And um, I hope mm -hmm. someday maybe we can all make a, a slight difference in changing that. I mean, you couldn't secretly go to some professional mm -hmm. and tell them don't tell anybody or it was just a, a mental thing. Like, I don't want to admit that I need help. That's exactly right. I can do this, you know, hey, I'm a man, I can handle it. Um, I'm, I'm a warrior, I can handle it. Or, or just, you know, hey, I'm a cop, I can handle it. Because these first responders like police and fire, it's not a job, it's an identity, right? And, and that's what makes this so difficult is because you're just not, you know, Norm the cop down the street. I mean, Norm the neighbor down the street, you're Norm the cop down the street. And once you lose that identity, then you, you just, it's hopelessness sets in because that's all you know what to do. And that's who 
you are. It's not what you do, it's who you are. And that's the big problem. So those kind of attitudes certainly come into play when you're given medication and sleeping pills to deal with what you would say anxiety and, and the pain of your disease. So that, that's a slippery slope. I, I work in the pharmacy industry. So you were addicted to C2s, is that right? Yeah, what happened was during the surgeries, doctors kept filling these prescriptions for opioids, Percocet, you know, all these painkillers. And I, I didn't feel anything, right? My neuropathy had been to a point where I don't have any feeling in my feet at all. So that was just stacking up. And then eventually, I think it was somewhere around 2003, 2002, 2003, I started having these bad nightmares. And um, the nightmares were about work, were, you know, the, the deaths, um, some shooting scenarios, some violent other scenes. And I was having a difficult time handling it. I was, I would be up all night afraid to go to sleep sometimes, you know? So one of my friends said, Hey, you know, go get some Ambien and that'll help you. If Ambien helped me get to sleep, but wow, it made them, um, the it dreams makes your dreams so very, vivid. yes, very horrible. vivid. So I can understand that. And so what, what happened was I was still working at the time, but I was, I had been promoted to, uh, it's equivalent of a lieutenant, and I was running a uh, narcotic task force. So these task forces are, are countywide, and it's run by the state, but it has police officers from each jurisdiction. So I had one or two police officers from each jurisdiction, and I would supervise them, and we'd go out and do narcotic enforcement. So being the boss, I could kind of lay back a little bit and not have to too, too much get involved. So I was able to, to work, but I was also experiencing a lot of panic attacks and anxiety attacks that, you know, I never told anybody about. The guys knew about my physical disabilities because I was limping and, and I couldn't, because of the surgeries, I couldn't run anymore. I, my ankles wouldn't move like I was walking flat footed. So I found that these, the opioids help take the edge off of the the panic and anxiety attacks and then once that happens you know we we just go through the easy way out right instead of dealing with my root issue i just i just tried to cover it up with the pills and then pretty soon you know you take one or two every six or seven hours and pretty soon you're taking four every six hours pretty soon you're taking eight every four hours you know and, and you're done it, it's a it's an addiction at that point now i didn't believe it was because I thought to myself, I, I got this handle. I'm just using them to cover up this emotion, right? But no, I, it was, it was, when I look back, it was a full blown out addiction. Mm. Wow. That was caused my downfall, you know, in, in the addicted mind, that's, that's the downfall. Now, aren't there any other mm. therapies? Um, I think you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. That's an alternative, maybe? It, it could have been at that point if I would have sought out the help, but you see, I never sought out the help. So when you're in your addictive state, you, you don't think straight. Right. No. And so what, what was going on was an ongoing problem. I, I couldn't, I, my hands got so bad. It got difficult to manipulate or, or handle my weapon. Yeah. So I really truly couldn't defend myself. Looking back now, I was stupid. 
right? And, and I put other people in danger because of my macho ego, you know, um, issues. How in the world did you hide that? It was uh, just staying in the back, hiding out, you know, um, lying, doing a lot of lying, like going to the range and not shooting as well as I used to. Oh yeah, I'm getting a little bit of arthritis in my hands or, you know, I, or I, I, I hit my hand with a hammer working the other day. And, you know, it's, and oh. because I was well-respected at all the um, agencies around here, they either believed it or just turned their head around, you know, mm. and didn't want, because we don't want to see other people's, other police officers' illnesses or, or diseases because we believe then that it could happen to us, right? The same thing about an officer's death. When, when that happens on on-duty death, we, we come to grips with our own mortality, right? And that's right. very difficult to do. And so mm. we try to avoid that. We respect and, and honor that, that officer's service. But inside, we're, we've got a lot of turmoil going on. So uh, I was involved with the pills for uh, about three years or so. And then my daughter, who's an adult at the time, and she had moved out, but I have two daughters, she ended up having a diagnosis of liver tumors. Wow. And this one tumor was wrapped around the artery where the doctor said it required this special surgery from um, UCLA Medical Center, and mm -hmm. that, that's in LA, and that it was be 50% survival of the surgery. It was that serious. And that sent me in a downward spiral. spiral. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it anymore. And it's pretty scary. About two weeks after that was my first suicide attempt. And then a couple weeks after that, my second, I guess I shouldn't say attempt, um, serious ideation. I, I sat there with the gun in my mouth. Um, I think it's only God that stopped me from, from doing it. But at that time, I, I wasn't a believer. So I didn't think that was it. I thought it was my own ego because I didn't want to, to survive a, a suicide attempt and look disfigured, right? <clears throat> Just crazy thoughts go through your head. And so then a friend of mine who was no longer a cop, he used to be a cop. And I, I shouldn't say friend because I thought he was a friend, but obviously he wasn't a friend. He saw, well, I shouldn't say he saw. I, I'm, I made all the decisions that I made. I take full responsibility for everything that I've done. Right. But I, I think he manipulated the situation to benefit him. I had been helping him. You know, the computer database that the law enforcement uses is... is um, protected by, by misdemeanors, where if you use it for your own um, use, that you could be charged for it. Wow. But he was a detective, a private detective, and I would, I would um, run like license plates for him and, and give him the owner's information just as a favor, you know, not thinking it was a real big deal, but it's a slippery slope, right? It's just yeah. like in any profession. Once you start violating your own ethical standards, it, it can go right downhill real quick, you know, without, without even realizing it, you know, it's, it, it happens so fast that you don't even know what's happening. You know, I, I equate it to people that work in offices where they might take a, a couple pens home, you know, and then pretty soon they're taking some computer paper home and some ink cartridges or something. And pretty soon their conscience gets so seared that, they just um, start dipping into the, the petty cash fund or something or, or yeah. falsifying time cards. You know, it happens all the time. And people think, oh, well, you know, I deserve it. I work hard. I'm not getting paid enough. You know, we justify it in our mind. The CEO makes millions, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> exactly. You know, so 
he, he kind of held that against me a little bit um, in, in my warped mind at that time, because I, I believe that I, I don't even know what I believe. I, I've taken the last 10 years really trying to analyze why I did the things I did. And it's not clear, you know, I went to psychologists and psychiatrists for three years. I went to Christian counselors. And the only thing that I could come up with is I just wasn't thinking because because the drug abuse clouds your mind, or I was trying to self-sabotage to where I wasn't man enough to actually quit because of my disease and do the right thing. I wanted to be, I wanted to make it through retirement, right? I wanted to to have that big party where everybody celebrates you and stuff. Because if I would have just retired on a medical, nobody would have, you know, they just, oh, another guy just retired, no big deal. Yeah. And, and, and mentally for a first responder, I mean, you, to be a first responder, you got to have a big ego anyway, because you got to be tough and, and you got to yeah. believe in yourself. So I'm not sure exactly what the reason was. All I know is that my decisions were all clouded. Anyway, I ended up stealing for him some drugs out of the evidence room and gave it to him and he gave it directly to an informant the very first time so the very first time uh, i did something wrong i got caught so obviously i'm not a good drug Ooh. dealer yeah so i got arrested and to be honest I, I mean after you hear the rest of the story it was the best thing that ever happened to me uh, my arrest and my incarceration was the best thing and i think god knew what he was doing at that time mm-hmm. so um, I mean, what's I, your wife think at, at this point in the story? What, what was your wife going through? And well, I had worked kids. undercover for, for nine, nine months. I mean, it's really under undercover where I couldn't even go to the police department stuff. This was a few years back, uh, buying drugs, you know, everywhere. And she thought it was actually fake. She thought that this was some kind of a, a gag like that, right? So I'll infiltrate the prison mob or something like that. Oh, yeah. And I had to try to really convince her, go, no, it's, it's real. I, I did this. And, and, but she knew that I was on a downward spiral. She knew that um, I wasn't thinking straight and she was afraid of my reactions. If she were to report me, she told me later that she was truly thinking about calling my department and, and, and saying that not, not about the drugs, but you know, about my mental state, but she was afraid of my reaction and, and probably rightfully so. I mean, in that, in that, frame of mind that I was in I probably would have been very very angry yeah but, well, she's a rock in the hard place at that yeah, point yeah even my best friend at that time he's no longer my friend because of what I did but my best friend at that time took a little bit of responsibility too he goes man I, I saw these changes in you you know your attitude and, and your just your, your depressed state but I never asked you why and I told you we don't want to talk to each other about these things right everything is good don't worry about me. I got this handled. Everything is good. And um, so he, he did say that he felt a small amount of responsibility for not talking to me or, or saying anything, but that's the way cops are, you know? Mm-hmm. So I got arrested and I bailed out and this is where God started working in my life. It's, it's tr- truly incredible. I was sitting at home after a couple of weeks in this Pastor calls. And, and again, I'm, I don't believe in God at this point. Pastor mm-hmm. calls. And he said his name was Pastor Jeff Kenny. He was from the New Hope International Church. He says, I got your phone number from a friend of your father's who was worried about you. And I said, okay. And he said, I just want to offer our church up. We, we do counseling. 
And I, I feel that you, you do a lot better in, in the church setting. And in my mind, I'm, I'm, I'm already kind of like, okay, when's this guy going to hang up? You know, I'm trying to blow the guy off. <clears throat> and uh, I said, no, you know, I'll, I'll be okay. Don't worry about it. He goes, okay, well, the offer is always open. Do you mind if I pray with you? I said, sure. You know, in my mind, I'm saying, you're going to knock yourself out. I mean, I don't care, right? Yeah. But what he did is he did the sinner's prayer. And I didn't even know what the sinner's prayer was. And at the end, he says, do you give your life to Jesus Christ? And I, I didn't really mean it, but I said, yeah, sure. You're just being and, polite. Uh, yeah, I was just trying to be polite, right? My mom told me, don't be, be rude. But I was just trying to uh, get rid of the guy. Because, you know, this isn't going to help my situation. That's a church. You know, how, what does the church have to do with healing or, or, or dealing with trauma? So I go sit back down on the couch and my, my wife is looking at me. She goes, what's wrong? And I said, I, I think I feel better. I don't know. It feels almost like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. Right. Wow. And she says, well, maybe it's things that missing out of your life is God. Cause she had grown up Catholic. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why she hadn't practiced or um, told me about it was because she knew that I was a non-believer and was kind of afraid that I would just, you know, you know, a hey, Bible thumper, get out of here, you know, or something like that. She, we, we talked about it. the next week we went to church and it was just an incredible experience. I mean, wow. I, um, they all hugged me and, and, and they didn't know who I was, but you know, when I, a new person in the church, it was so kind that they were so kind and loving it was incredible. It really was an incredible experience going to church. It really was. And so as I was still struggling with my daughter's illness and all these court stuff going on and, and my name being all over the TV and stuff, the church was a, a place of refuge, right? It was, it was, a, I felt at home there and it was really, really comforting for me. One day, uh, my daughter decided, okay, um, we're going to get a, a biopsy of these liver tumors. And the next week in church, uh, Pastor Jeff was doing the sermon. And he'd never never done this before, he tells me. But he stopped mid-sermon because the Holy Spirit told him to, to pray for, for Jennifer. That's her name. To pray for me and Jennifer. So he stopped the sermon, right in the middle of the sermon. And, and he, he prayed with the whole congregation for my daughter's healing. It was incredible. I mean, I was crying my eyes out. So the next week we got a, um, she got a biopsy. Everything went well. A few weeks later, we went to the doctor and the doctor showed us the, the new scans um, that, that she had. And there was not a, a liver tumor on there. She said it's total um, normal liver tissue. That is crazy. I, really, I mean, I was mad because I thought that he had misdiagnosed it. And I blamed, I didn't really blame my daughter, but I knew that that was like the last straw. So I I started yelling at the doctor saying, you know, you missed that. You don't know what you did to my life, blah, blah, blah. And no, he showed me the the, um, diagnostic and a second opinion from UCLA. Mm -hmm. And it said, yeah, these, these are liver to me. He showed me the two scans and that's when it kind of hit me. uh, I can't describe it. It was so awesome feeling it was like the the holy spirit came upon me right it was like i all of a sudden it hit yeah wham wham right and all of a sudden i believed in god i mean i wasn't sure during that 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 four weeks of being a baby christian 
But now I knew that there's a, a loving, kind God out there because he healed my daughter. And she has not had any trouble with that since. And she's since had two children. And it's... It, it is so uh, awesome. I've, I've ne- I mean, I'm in the medical community. I'd, I've never heard a story like that. Oh, that is crazy. Know, and I wish these stories would come out more because maybe people would believe. So anyway, then after that, I, I got sentenced. I got, they sentenced me to 14 years in prison. And they promised to keep me in California, but of course they didn't. They sent me to Fort Worth, Texas. And when I went to Fort Worth, Texas, I was really mad again because they sent me so far away. But you see, God has a plan. We want to do things our way, but God has a plan. So the second day I was there, I went to the church. Right away, they offered me a job. They said, hey, you want to work here? Everybody in prison has got to work. And I started learning about the bible right that's when i really started to study the bible and a seminary was there tyndale seminary from texas was there and they did classes in the in the prison so i used those classes ended up getting my master's degree in theology and counseling and then another guy came from la he was a la police officer and and he was there and he showed me the the works of elijah house in Mm -hmm. in idaho i don't know if you've heard of them but i've heard of them but they're great, great healing ministry. And we ended up reading the books and stuff. And he knew a little bit more about it. But when we worked together, we worked out is this, it's, I expanded on a lot more in my, my book that's coming out, but it's like, I call it a spiritual cleansing, right? You got to forgive who you've got to forgive, ask for forgiveness. You know, you got to stop the judging. You got to stop the, the anger and the frustration, the resentment. It's like clean, cleaning out the house, right? And then that's when you, you begin that healing process. So we did that. And this whole time that I was in Fort Worth, I was going to psychologists there because of my severe PTSD. And there was no healing there. All secular, well, I shouldn't say all, but the majority of the secular counselors, all they can really do to help you is to provide you with coping mechanisms to help you cope with the PTSD symptoms, Right. But God heals. You know, God, if you follow the biblical principles and rules and laws, God heals. And, and I believed he truly healed me just like he healed my daughter. And um, then after that, they sent me to Lompoc Prison, which is um, near Santa Barbara. That's where I ended up getting my doctorate degree in Christian counseling. Uh-huh. And I ended up going through a two-year program through the community college to get my addiction counselor certification. And um, when the COVID hit, um, because of my pre-existing issues, they they let me out and c- to come home. Now I'm still on home confinement. I wear an ankle monitor, but I'm allowed to go to work and I'm allowed to um, go to church. And and basically, I, that's basically about it. Go to the doctor. So I got a job as in a men's recovery center, and I'm an addiction counselor right now. And I finished the book, my book, which is Christ-Centered Healing of Trauma. And that's going to come out in like September. And I, I really hope that, that the, the biblical principles that I present will, will heal or help heal a lot of people because I've noticed that we all need healing. And that was the best thing that happened to me in prison was mm-hmm. I realized why people think, do things they do. As a cop, you don't know why people commit crimes. You just think they're, they're criminals. But 99% commit crimes for some underlying root cause issue, right? Right. Either they've been traumatized as a child Mm -hmm. or, you know, um, something happened 
in their late, later life that caused them to, to do dumb things, make poor decisions. And, and most of it's, it's drug addiction. And the, the main reason for drug addiction is negative emotions. We're all just trying to heal our negative emotions. Pills are the easy way. Just looking at your own self, self-analyzing or, or, or looking into your, your traumas um, is, is, that's, is traumatic, is, is not fun. No, it's not. So that's, that's why we do the things we do and not, not giving them excuses, but people don't know, you know, like God says, our, our, um, we are destroyed for lack of knowledge, you know? So that's what my book is all about, but it's really God. God moves so much in my life. It's, it's incredible. It really is incredible. I mean, I only did eight years of a 14 year sentence. Um, my family stuck, stuck with me. My kids um, are yeah, still here. God bless I'm, your, your family. Yeah, I'm, I'm reconnecting with my grandkids or, or meeting the new ones. I just babysat two of them last night. And, and that's why I'm doing these things. I want everybody to understand that, yes, you've been through something. And, yes, you didn't deserve to do, have that done to you. But God will, will bring you through it. All you have to do is love him. And God's going to make things right. And he's going to use that trauma to help other people in the future. I truly believe that. I wanted to circle around when you said about, you know, the, the psychiatrist, psychologist, and Christian counseling. I, I definitely believe that we should have both because I had a year of nuthetic counseling in college and our denomination believed that you know, depression was a sin and anxiety is a sin and taking any kind of medication was a sin. And all they would do is quote Bible verses at you, but they didn't address the chemical imbalances in the brain or the trauma that somebody has gone through. So that's why I'm very passionate about mending the soul because they do have both psychological principles that are already proven to work as you say they they give you helping they, they give you coping mechanisms and have you recognize what it is that you went through but you also need you also need the lord because trauma and abuse affect how you perceive god as you already know and yes i i think you can heal to a certain extent um without without God, but I think you're going to be limping around, you know, in crutches. I think for exactly. a, a full, complete healing as the Lord is a great physician is you have to have both. You can't just go to a shrink or a psychiatrist um, and just deal with the physical part. You also need the spiritual aspect, the soul. Your soul has been damaged. Your soul has been put through a, a blender and hit frappe. So no, you're exactly right. And, and that's what I recommend is, mm -hmm. is to have a complete physical done too. Cause the, there are chemical imbalances that can cause this. It, it doesn't need to be a spiritual wound, but the, for the rest of us that don't have that, you're exactly right. You know, there's one psychologist in my area that saved my life because he taught me these coping skills. So they are truly necessary mm -hmm. for a crisis intervention, I believe. 
but we can talk about our trauma for weeks and years and in multiple years, but without God, I don't think right. we can truly heal. And like you said, yes, we can make it through life and we could use those coping mechanisms and coping skills to avoid whatever triggers us or to, to make it through life, but to truly feel that peace and joy that only God can bring. I think that's where the spiritual component comes in. Yes. And I've, I've seen many, many people come through the journey of healing. And I mean, even in 18 weeks that my, my group meets, you can see the transition. It's, it's a visible difference. Like your, your wife noticed when, <laughs> even though you, you said the prayer and you kind of didn't mean it, your, your wife noticed something was, Hey, something's different about you. There's a, there's a visible difference when God's, God's in play there. Um, and it's a lesson also to, to anybody. If somebody comes up to you, we don't normally see our, our, our behaviors change because we feel the same. I mean, we might feel depressed, but we feel the same. But if someone, a trusted friend or a relative comes to you and says, I see something different in you, that's time right there for self-analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if your kids are acting out when they normally don't act out or losing their temper when they're normally an easygoing person or nightmares. You mentioned nightmares and that's a, a red flag to start investigating. Hey, what's going on? And you know, a lot of people don't realize that like cognitive behavioral therapy and, and those other therapies really mirror biblical principles like CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy is really the same thing as Paul talks about in second Corinthians. I think it's chapter 10 where he says, take every thought captive, right? Cause CBT, what it does is, is it makes you understand that you have faulty thinking and it tries to repro I shouldn't say reprogram, but it, to realize that you see things from a different perspective and change your behavior. Well, Paul says it in, in, in that, in chapter 10, he says, um, take every thought captive to the word of God. Mm -hmm. Right. So when we have these negative emotions, we have to look inside of us and say, okay, why am I doing that? You know, because I truly believe it. And I like to illustrate it with everybody knows a car's dashboard when the red light comes on and it's projecting catastrophic failure, right? You got to fix this or else something's going to bad is going to happen. Right. Well, I think our emotions are the same. God gave us these emotions, right? And when these negative emotions pop up, he's telling us, you need to deal with this situation. You start having nightmares on a regular basis. What's the nightmare about? We got to analyze. We got to find out because usually if we can change our perspective from, from an inward perspective to a more godly perspective, we can begin that healing process. And I think that's truly important. We, we don't need to live with these negative emotions. And it's, it's sad that we get comfortable with them. You know, we, we almost expect them. And some of us even relish him, right? Because we, we talk to friends, oh yeah, you know, my boss passed my, me up and now I'm never going to get promoted. You know, but sometimes people like that because they, they like it gets them sympathy and empathy mm -hmm. from other people, but it's truly not the way God intended us to be. Exactly. You have your book coming out. And so do you have any other resources for those that would need this kind of help? I have a little bit of information on my website, which is www.christ-centeredhealing.com. 
And um, I have a Facebook page, ChristCenteredHealing.com. And we talk about healing. I haven't, I used, put some videos up, but I haven't done them lately because I've been working so much at, at the recovery center. But it, it's really important. And if there's anybody, anybody that's really suffering right now, uh, I'll be more than happy to help. Just email me and then maybe we could talk. It's, it's important to, to heal. You know, we, we don't need to be going through these negative emotions. And uh, I, I'll help whoever is in. You don't have to be a first responder or anything. If somebody's truly going through some difficult times, uh, I'll be more than happy to help. Yeah, I think that's really valuable. You've, you've given so much really great advice and your story is so powerful. And I'm really glad we had this conversation uh, about your story. And um, thanks so much for what you do. And I know it's not, it hasn't been an easy road for you. I'm excited to see what, what God does with you from here on out. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Thank you. And thank you for having me on to tell my story because I believe people should know that, yeah, we can make mistakes. We can do stupid things, even criminal stuff, but still God has a plan for each one of us, right? We may not understand it at this point, but when we look back, like now I look back and I see, wow, God orchestrated all these things and put me where I am today. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me, even though each day in prison was horrible. It was the best thing to happen to me because now I'm a more compassionate and empathetic person and um, I want to help. I don't, I don't want to be selfish anymore. I, I want to, to be part of the kingdom and, and help. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. You too. Well, folks, I, I hope that you enjoyed that interview. He was very honest and raw about what happened and the mistakes he's made and owing up to them and and he's there for you. I'm here for you if you need help. Of course, you know about my, my mentoring program. It is customized for you. You can find that on my website. And that is a financial obligation as well as a time obligation for that. Um, but it is custom made for the time frame that you need and the things that you need help with. And what my specialty is, of course, is helping people to start over after leaving an abusive environment. So go ahead on my website, dswministries.org, and you will see uh, the page for that. And we talked about Mending the Soul, just like we always do on the show. So Mending the Soul is a, a group for healing from domestic violence, abuse, and any kind of trauma. That is 18 weeks long. It doesn't cost anything to join the group. The only cost is the textbooks, one of which is behind me here. Mending the Soul textbook and workbook, but if you cannot afford those, we will find somebody that can help you out with the books. I don't want anybody not being in the group because they can't afford the books. We want to help you, but there is an interview process to make sure that you are ready to join the group and that you are willing for the commitment to be in the group. Because it's not just a, it's not like a Bible study where you can come and go as you please. I did an entire podcast episode on mending the soul. What's it, what's it like to be in a group? So please listen to that if you're interested in learning more about 
what it's like and the intake process for that. And I want to remind you that you are no longer a victim, but you are victorious. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.